This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 9, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Asalaamu Alaikum, welcome back to another episode of the Islamic History Podcast. This will be episode 9 of season 3, and today we will be talking about the differences between Sunnis and Shia. This will be a slightly different episode than what you're probably used to by now, in the fact that this is going to be purely informational, and I'm just going to really talk about these two groups, uh, really the differences between these two groups. And this uh, comes from a listener request who wanted to know if I could uh, list down some of the differences between Sunnis and Shia. And it is quite relevant considering that we have just completed the massacre at Karbala, which culminated with the death of Hussein ibn Ali. And it was his death that led to the formation or the solidification, perhaps that's a better word, of the Shias or the Shia group or the Shiite sect. So, inshallah, we're going to run down some of the differences and similarities on various topics between Sunnis and Shia. And as I always try to disclaim or try to let people know, I am aware that I'm coming from a Sunni bias I will try my best to be as unbiased as possible and just give straight facts. So my intention is not to, by any means, say anything bad or disrespect or cast any shade or anything like that or anyone's beliefs. I don't, I'm not one of these um, Shia hating Sunnis or anything like that. I don't hate Shias at all. I recognize the differences now that I know the history much more, and hopefully you do as well. I understand the reason behind many of their beliefs or the reason why they have certain ideas about Islam. Doesn't mean I agree with them. I just understand why they're there. And I see that also that there's a, we have a lot more in common with each other than um, we like to, so many of us like to pretend. And I think some of our disagreements between Sunnis and Shias are kind of overblown on both sides. Uh, I think a little, a few of them are, are rather um, unnecessary disagreements between us that don't necessarily have to exist. But we won't really, we won't really get into that. I'll try to stay away from my own opinion as much as I can and just try to relay the facts as best as I can, inshallah. And once we get finished talking about the differences between the Sunnis and Shia, I'm going to spend a little bit of time discussing the plans for this, for this show going forward so you know what to expect in the coming weeks and months ahead, inshallah. So let's get into this thing. So first of all, with the Sunnis and Shias, well, particularly with the Shias, at this point in time, there's no term, there's no label for Sunnis, so to speak. The Shias do exist, but they exist more or less as a political group. They were those Muslims who supported Ali, and hence they called themselves the Shia to Ali. Uh, that could be translated as the partisans or the party or the supporters of Ali. Uh, maybe a very um, a related uh, interpretation of the word Shia is sect. So you may want to call it the sect of Ali, but that is more of a, a more recent interpretation, whereas originally it was they were just considered the partisans, those who supported Ali. And it was a political division, like Democrats and Republicans now. Democrats, Democrats and Republicans, they may go to the same church, they may agree on 99% of the things, but on a few things politically they disagreed on. And this was the same thing with Sunnis and Shias. Well, there were no Sunnis back then, it was just the Shias. <laughs> so is the Shias and everybody else. And the Shias were the political party that supported uh, Ali. And after Ali, they also supported his sons, Hassan and then Hussein in particular. Now, it's also important to, re to understand that not all of the Muslims during this period of time fell into one of these two categories. It wasn't 
either you you're a supporter of Ali or you're against Ali. It wasn't that black and white back then. Not everyone who disagreed with Ali agreed with Muawiyah. And as you saw, many of those who did support Ali wound up giving bayat to Muawiyah and then even fighting for his son, Yazid, against Ali's son, Hussein, even though these people had originally been allied with um, with Ali. In fact, the person who killed Ali's son, Ali Akbar, was one of Ali's fighters from the Battle of the Camel. Goes to show that this was much more of a political thing rather than a religious thing. Over the centuries, over the years, this political divide developed and turned into a religious one where now there are significant religious differences between the two groups, but originally it wasn't like that at all. And as I wanted to once again say that not all the Muslims fell into one of these groups. It wasn't just for or against Ali. There were those Shia who supported Ali. There were those Muslims who supported Muawiyah. And there were many who did not support either one, who remained neutral. Some of them included Ibn Omar and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and several others. They remained neutral. They neither supported Muawiyah, they never gave him bayah, and they never supported Ali either. And they disagree with Ali's claim to disagree with Muawiyah's actions. And they, and even I can even probably say that Aisha, right there, Anha, was another one who fell into that category. She did not support Ali. In fact, she actually, in a way, kind of rose up against Ali. But she never actually supported Muawiyah's claim. At the time that Aisha um, fought against Ali, really, she had no connection with Muawiyah whatsoever. And in all likelihood, she would have supported Ali over Muawiyah, considering who Muawiyah was. I mean, Muawiyah was the son of Abu Sufyan, who was an enemy of the Prophet وسلم, until uh, just before the conquest of Mecca, whereas Ali was part of the Prophet's household. So chances are, had not the differences developed between Aisha and Ali regarding finding Uthman's killers, chances are Ali, Aisha would have almost certainly supported Ali's claim over Muawiyah. In fact, Muawiyah didn't even really claim the caliphate until after Ali died. I'm getting off point here, and I got to be careful of that. I can really get into some deep woods if I'm not careful. But I just want to let you know that there were, there were more than um, two different groups. It wasn't just for or against Ali. There's also a third party, a third group that um, was neither for nor against them. They remained neutral. So we're going to now get into some of the differences between these two groups. Well, not quite. There's a few things I want to talk about first before we get into the differences. First, regarding the different sects of Shiites. There are quite a few of them. I couldn't get into all of them. Most of the sects, and that is S-E-C-T-S, I hope I pronounced my T properly. Most of the sects in Islam are branches of Shiites. They're people or groups that split off from this first group of Shiites that split off from the main group of Muslims. There aren't too many sects among Sunni Muslims. What we have in Sunni Islam are is more um, the schools of thought. And I've discussed this in the past um, in different episodes. But the schools of thought in Islam, which to me are analogous or similar to denominations in Christianity. So the Sunni schools of thought or the Sunni madhahib, madhab, those more or less differ based upon certain concepts, certain thick principles. But the overall belief structure is the same between all of the four remaining Sunni schools of thoughts. There, there's not any significant theological or jurisprudence differences. This is why Sunnis really have no problem praying with each other. Uh, they intermarry even if they're from different groups. And sometimes differences do arise. And there are some fine points of theology that they disagree on. And one that we spoke about in the past was whether the Quran was created or not. And sometimes these differences have led to violence, as we discussed. But it hasn't gotten to the point where a new group forms and they consider themselves separate from the others. Not so far yet. And I know some people may want to bring up the Salafi movement, which kind of puts themselves in a way, um, sometimes as saying that they are separate from everyone else and the fact that 
they believe they are the the guided sect. And even among Sunnis, they believe that most Sunnis, most, let me clarify this a little bit. Many, um, there's a the subgroup within the Salafi movement, uh, which some people call Wahhabis, but I don't really care for that term. Many um, Salafis do believe that um, the rest of Sunni Muslims, they, Salafis consider themselves Sunni Muslims, but they believe the rest of Sunni Muslims are misguided or off the right track. They won't make takfir against them. They won't say that they're not Muslim, but they will have a condescending attitude towards them. And that's, um, that's probably the closest we have to a separate sect. There is another group of Sunni Muslims, even though these people don't call themselves Sunni Muslims, and that's that group of Muslims, and mostly in the United States, who developed from the uh, Nation of Islam. And they don't really have a term, and they don't have a name for themselves. The community of um, Imam Warthur D. Muhammad or W.D. Muhammad, that's not really a separate sect either. Maybe at one point in time, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you might have had a, uh, a case for them being a separate sect, but they have kind of been melded into the mainstream of Sunni Islam, even though they don't like calling themselves Sunni Muslims. Their practices are almost in line with Shafi'i fiqh. So, they, I mean, they could say that they're not a, a Sunni Muslim, but if most of what they do is according to Shafi'i fiqh, I don't know what, to, what else to call them. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. With Shiites, however, quite a few sects. And they're clear sects. They have absolutely, there are groups who say that everybody else, even among the Shiites, are generally uh, misguided. They have different rituals. They have very significant different beliefs, even from even from within different Shiites. And they actually believe these different sects that sprung up. They actually believe that they are the rightly guided ones and that everybody else, even from among other Shiites, are misguided. So one of these are, well, the, let's get into the, 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 um, the different groups. First and foremost, the main group of Shiites are the Twelvers. That's the largest group found mostly in Iraq and Iran, uh, primarily Iran, of course, and a good, the majority of people in Iraq as well. And it's from this one group that all the different other sects have split off from, different sects of Shiites have split off from. This is the main primary group that follows the 12 imams, starting with, um, I believe, Hassan, well, Ali, Ali first, and then Hassan, and then Hussein, then Zainal Abidin, and on down the line. I don't know all their names. But they believe that there's 12 generations of imams, and I'm not going to get into all that, all that stuff, but basically this is the main group of Muslims, of Shiite Muslims, that is. There is a small subgroup of these 12ers, and 12ers are called Athna Ashari, which means 12-verse or 12, 12-verse. It's the Arabic word for 12. Uh, there's a subgroup called the Alawi. They are mostly represented by, most prominent representation of them is the ruling family in Syria, primarily Bashar al-Assad and, that, and his family. They differ from the um, main group of 12-verse in one very crucial idea in that they they practically deify Ali. They um, kind of make Ali very close to a Godhead figure, kind of like a trinity. So if you want to go back, I discussed it a little bit more in the episode about the Syrian civil war. I go into more depth about it. So if you want to go back and listen to that. But these, this is not the, this is a subgroup of the Twelvers. This is not the main group of the Twelvers. The Alawi are a minority even within the Twelvers, a very, very small minority um, only reason they have power in, in Syria is because a French colonialist gave it to them before they left. They decided to put the weakest group over everybody else. Lord knows why. We see how that turned out. Anyway, neither here nor there. The point of the matter is there are the Twelvers, and that's the largest group of Shiite Muslims. Second after them are the Seveners, which we know of as the Ismailis. And the reason for the, for the division, and I'm pretty sure I spoke about this when we were discussing the story of the assassins, is that the seventh generation of imams um, in the um, imamate line of the Shiites. Name was Isma one was named Ismail. I can't remember the other guy's name. But the Ismailis felt that Ismail should have been the, um, the imam and they broke off and they became the Ismailis. From the Ismailis came a whole bunch of other sects and I can't even keep track of them. I know the main ones are Dawoodis, Hafizis, and Dawoodis, Hafidis, and Nizaris, those are the main ones 
Um, I think the Hafidis are gone now, but Dawoodis and Nizaris still exist. And I think I believe the Nizaris are the one that wound up becoming the assassin group. And the Dawoodis still exist, primarily, primarily in India. And there are many, many more beyond that. I mean, they keep splitting off because all the, these groups split off. The same reason why the first group of um, Ismailis group split off. Because they disagree. Same reason why the Shiites split off in the first place. Disagreement over who should be the uh, successor, who should be the leader, who should be the imam, who should be the caliph. Whatever, whatever leader it is. That's why they. That's why they split off. So, the Shiites split off from the Sunnis or from the main group of Muslims primarily because of disagreement who should be the leader, and then the Ismailis split off from the from the main group of Shiites based upon who should be the next Imam, and then from the Ismailis you get a whole bunch of different caliphs or successors and all the people who break off Dawoodis, Hafizis, Nizaris, and a bunch more that I didn't bother to write down, and. Most of them broke off for the same thing. So you have very, very tiny groups, sometimes half a million or a million people only, making up a complete sect of, um, I don't know, Ismaili Shiite Muslims. I'm, I'm, it's hard to even categorize them sometimes. So you might think, wow, you know, half a million people, a million people, that's pretty big. Not really. If you think about it, you know, almost two billion Muslims and growing. And talking about a, a million groups of some, a million people in this obscure group of uh, Shiite or Ismaili Muslims only found in one part of the world. That's less than half a percent. It's not really that much. So, that, that's, you know, be that as it may, that's um, one big, that's another group right there. So, we got two groups so far the Twelvers, the uh, Ismailis, and now the next one is, are the Zaydis. The Zaydis are like a mixture between Sunni and Shia. They are probably the closest Shia branch to Sunni Islam or to Sunni Muslims, and they're mostly found in Yemen. Some scholars even say that the Zaydis are really the Zaydis are really a uh, fifth school of thought of Sunni Islam because their differences with Sunni Muslims are not that pronounced. They're not that. They're really not that um that great. In fact, um, they, unlike many of the Shiites, and we'll get into this later on, they don't believe in cursing Abu Bakr and Omar and other of the major companions. They simply believe that Ali should have been the, um, would have made a better caliph, that he should have been the caliph after uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but they don't curse or disparage Abu Bakr and Omar. And when we get into the, we're going to get into this, this is one of the, the biggest differences between Sunnis and Shias are is the um, the relationship between or the way we look at or remember the the first three caliphs of Islam, and this is also like the political problems because, as you are well aware, there's a um, at this point in time that we're discussing July two thousand seventeen. There's a civil war going in Yemen, and this civil war is really part of a larger proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran with Saudi Arabia representing, well, claiming to represent Sunni Islam and Iran claiming to represent Shiite Islam, and they're using these two, their proxies in Yemen, uh, to try to gain control of the country or to have their group gain control of the country. I'm not going to get into the politics of Yemen right now, but basically these um, the Zaidis, even though uh, theologically they're very close to Sunni Muslims, um, and, uh, because of their love for Ali, they're still more or less inclined towards Shiites. And so Saudi Arabia and Iran are using their proxies inside of Yemen based upon um, this whole big problem. But once again, on a, from an Islamic perspective or from a, um, a religious perspective, Zaydis are very close to Sunni Muslims. Um, also, the Zaydis don't really hold really close to the, the, the imamate thing. I'm not going to get into the mandate this concept in, of uh, Shiites, but you kind of—I'm sure I've spoke about this in the past. You kind of got an idea of it from this episode as well. Hopefully, you did at least that um, Shiites believe in a in a succession of imams, and that they have like the caliph represents the worldly power of Islam, whereas the imam represents the spiritual power of Islam. And so the Shiites, in the, to put it very very simply. They're like, well, if we don't have our rights 
with the physical or worldly power as a caliph, then we still have the spiritual right through the imam. And so that imam has passed down for 12 generations. That's why the first, well, for the main group of, of Shiites, they have 12 generations of imams. And uh, that's why the first, the largest group is called the um, 12 is Athena Ashari Shiites. The Zaydis in Yemen don't really hold to that as strongly as the, um, the rest of uh, the Shiite world does. And then finally, you have the Druze. The Druze are another subsect of Shiites that have broken off. And the Druze actually, their beliefs are so different. They are, their community is so closed off. They are so different that they are, they are really a different religion now. It started off as um, just, you know, another group of Shiites or another um, follower of another follower of Shiites who, I can't remember the, the origin story. I got to look back into it. But the Druze have developed their theology so, their, the tra trajectory of their theology has gone in such a way that they are really considered a separate religion now. And so you cannot convert to Druidism or Druism. You have to be born a Druze in order to be a Druze. They used to accept um, con converts centuries back, not anymore. Now, you know, to be a Druze, you got to be born a Druze. And they're only married within themselves. They're mostly found in Lebanon and uh, Syria a little bit, but mostly in Lebanon. And uh, once again, the Druze is, uh, is an example that I've kind of believe the Alawi would probably develop into that as well, if given enough time. So so now you know there's different groups. I'm not, once again, there's a whole bunch more, lots more details, but these are the main groups that I, that I found or that I'm aware of without having to do, you know, 10 months of research. Anyway, the Twelvers now are the closest group to Sunnis of all these different groups, except for the Zaydis. I told you, the Zaydis are pretty close also, but we're not going to really talk about the Zaydis because Zaydis are so close to Sunni Muslims, it's not even... You know, is their mixture. They're kind of like a mixture of the two. But the 12th hour are very close to Sunni Muslims and, and beliefs and practices. And so I'm going to go down the list of some very important topics and discuss the differences and similarities between the two as much as I can, inshallah. Uh, starting off with, of course, the most important thing is our concept of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of all that exists. So with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Sunnis and Shiites, pretty much the same. Sunnis and Twelver Shiites, at least, pretty much the same. When you get down to the uh, smaller groups, you know, they start elevating Ali practically to Godhead and all the other strange things they do. Then it can get kind of crazy. But with Sunnis and Twelver Shiites, the concept of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, pretty much the same, up and down, not much differences. You're not going to find any more differences between their concept of Allah and you're going to find that then you will find between the different um Sunni theological movements such as um, I can't even think of them right now but the various different theological movements within Sunni Islam you're going to find probably the same thing in Shiites and so there's really not much difference Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam once again same thing up and down pretty much straightforward Sunnis and Shiites are pretty much the same about that of, uh, there are differences of opinion about how they how we interpret certain statements from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of course but still as far as our relationship with the Prophet pretty much the same. There's not much difference I could find, if any at all. Maybe the difference in relation in um, the way the Prophet related to his companions, but as far as it's his figure, um, what he means to Muslims, not much difference whatsoever. The Quran, pretty much the same also. Sunnis and Shiites, um, 12 or Shiites I'm speaking of right now, not all the different groups, 12 or Shiites. Once again, pretty much the same. They Shiites believe it's the word, word of Allah, just like we do. There are a small group and some subsects that sub subsects of Shiites that believe that either the Quran was um, altered, or that parts are missing, or that uh, there's a a portion of revelation meant to come with Al Mahdi, who many of them believe as many Shiites believe is the hidden Imam. This is not a universal belief with all Shiites, but many of them do hold the belief that the Quran is incomplete. That is a significant difference from Shia Muslims, I'm sorry, from Sunni Muslims, because Sunni Muslims do not believe that at all. The Quran is complete as it is. But once again, this group is, this belief is once again, not universal with all um, 12 or Shiites either. But it does exist between, uh, among some of them. Okay. Um, Al-Mahdi, we just mentioned him. 
<sighs> Al Mahdi. Last time I mentioned Al Mahdi, I got long emails from people trying to convince me about certain beliefs with Al Mahdi. The belief of Al Mahdi is much stronger with Shiites than it was Sunnis. Um, Sunni Muslims have of late because to me, this um, Al Mahdi represents the final victory of Islam over everything else. And so when the, when the Muslims pretty much ran the world and the Shiites were the subjugated group, they were the underdogs, many historians believe that the, the idea of the Al-Mahdi was created to support the idea that we are low now, but eventually Allah will send someone to rescue us. And this is the Al-Mahdi. When the tables began to not really turn, but when Sunni Muslims began to get subjected under the Westerners and Christians and all, and also against um, uh, the Mongols and all the other things that happened to Muslims over, over the centuries, some historians believe that the, this idea of al-Mahdi transported over to Sunni Muslims as well, was absorbed by Sunni Muslims as well. Truth be told, I'm, I've mentioned this before, and I'm I'm not confident of the idea of the of um, al-Mahdi. I understand there are hadiths that support it, but it's not in the Quran and it's not in the major hadith hadith books. Um, the two major hadith books, Bukhari and Muslim. So, and it's not a tenet of Islam. We, if you accept or don't accept the al-Mahdi, it doesn't make you take you out of Islam. I'm in considering the history behind it. I'm not really convinced of this of the um, of al-Mahdi theory. I've done videos on it. I've studied it. So. I have a pretty good understanding of what um, the sequence of events. I've talked about a, a whole lot. I've had lectures and, and articles and videos and podcasts about it. As I mentioned before, I'm not I'm not really convinced Al-Mahdi is supposed to be something that is um, absolute definite in Islam. I believe in Isa al-Islam coming back. That's absolute. I, I kind of believe that. Not kind of I do believe that one. Um, but I'm not really convinced about Al-Mahdi. I believe, I believe Ad-Dajjal, uh, Antichrist, yeah, I'm, I, I can accept that also. Al-Mahdi, I'm not too sure about it. I, I kind of think we, we absorb, the Sunni Muslims have absorbed that over from the Shiites. Be that as it may, the Shiites believe that had they have a much stronger belief in Al-Mahdi than the Sunnis do. So um, the Shiites believe Al-Mahdi is you know, supposed to rescue them and elevate Shiites to the top of the food chain and and all that and they believe that he's also a, a hidden imam and just waiting to come so anyway we won't get into that but that's a there is a difference there sunni muslims um the vast majority of sunni muslims do accept al-mahdi um, i will i will acknowledge that part the vast majority of sunni muslims do acknowledge al-mahdi will come they believe in him as um as a futuristic uh, not quite savior but kind of like a savior in a way but the sunni idea is fragmented because this is why my I have my doubts in, in the in the Sunni version of Al Mahdi anyway is fragmented. The hadiths that describe him or that, that lay about the, the chain of events are going to lead to him are so vague. They're so spread out. They're so um they can be interpreted a, a you know a million different ways depending on how you want to look at it. And so I, I really don't it's not a very strong belief with with Sunni Muslims. Of course, many Muslim, Sunni Muslims do believe it. Most Sunni Muslims, I, I believe, do believe in al-Mahdi. I'm not convinced of it. Shiites have a much stronger hold on the idea, idea of um, al-Mahdi coming back, or al-Mahdi coming. Okay, moving on. Let's get into some of the companions. For instance, uh, of course, the most important one is Ali, radiallahu anhu. Uh, for Sunni Muslims, Ali is a highly respected companion fourth in line of all the companions um, generally speaking Sunni Muslims hold the in rank of um, I won't say importance but in rank of um, respect for the um, companions with Sunni Muslims it starts with Abu Bakr then Omar then Uthman and then Ali uh, those are the four top um, uh, companions for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and generally speaking, they accept it in that order. There's a few differences, but for the most part, Sunni Muslims accept accept um, those four as the high, most highly respected uh, Muslims um, companions of all. And then you go through the, um, the the other six who are promised paradise, and then goes on from there. For the Shiites, of course, Ali is 
head and shoulders above all of the companions. He is just a step below Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and so that's very clear with what they believe. Ali is the most highly um, idealized, respected, revered Muslim after Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Let me go to Ahlul Bayt. You heard you heard this uh, concept during the episode, some of the uh, past episodes. Ahlul Bayt. This includes Ali. For Shiite Muslims, this includes Ali, Fatima, and generally, generally their descendants. For the most part, uh, the Shiites believe that these people were infallible. That means that they do not commit sin, particularly with the imams. It means that um, they believe that they're infallible and that if the imam does something or did something that was strange, then just that we don't understand it. If it looks sinful, we just don't understand it. The imams and Ahlul Bayt, uh, they do not commit sin. Sunni Muslims don't accept infallibility, infallibility for anyone after Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and so we respect Ahlul Bayt, we respect the righteous people from among Prophet Muhammad's family, uh, that includes um, um, Ali and Fatima, Hassan and Hussein, and all their righteous descendants, includes Zainab and other uh, descendants. But also for Sunni Muslims, Ahlul Bayt does not just include Ali's descendants; it includes pretty much everyone who is righteous from Banu Hashim, from the Prophet's family. Everyone who is a righteous Muslim from the Prophet's clan, um, really from the Prophet's clan, from his from his lineage, from his descendants, and not just his descendants, but really his, his clan. So that includes Ibn Abbas, who was the Prophet's cousin. Cousin, nephew, I can't, I can't even think of it right now, but Ibn Abbas, who was, yeah, the Prophet's cousin, because, uh, no, Prophet's nephew. Anyway, Ibn Abbas, um, who was not a descendant of Ali, but he supported Ali during the um, the fitna between him, Ali, and Muawiyah. Ibn Abbas, Ibn Abbas's father, Abbas, and Ali's father, Abu Talib, were brothers. And Prophet Muhammad's father, Abdullah, was also a, a brother among these three. So these three, Prophet Muhammad, Ali, Ibn Abi Talib, and Ibn Abbas, these guys were all cousins. And so they had that... Um, family relationship, and so Ibn Abbas would be considered part of the Prophet's household and part of Ahlul Bayt from a Sunni perspective. Also, the Prophet's wives. So, <laughs> from a, you take the broadest concept for Sunni Muslims, Aisha is part of Ahlul Bayt. I know she has, may not like to hear that, but Aisha would be considered part of Ahlul Bayt. And so, for Sunni Muslims, all of the righteous Muslims from Banu Hashim would be considered part of Ahlul Bayt. We do not consider any of them as being infallible, with the exception of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And even with that, there's a difference of opinions, because there's a hadith that says all of Prophet Muhammad's past sins have been forgiven, past and future sins have been forgiven. And so you come to that logical argument: How could the Prophet be free of sin if all of his sins were forgiven? I'm not going to delve into that, but I'm just saying that there's a um, there is a difference of opinion about whether the Prophet was free of sin or whether um, there, or whether he, he committed sins or very minor sins that Allah forgave. It's hard for me to say the Prophet sinned, so I don't even like to say, say it myself. I, I, I kind of want to stay away from that dangerous territory right there. So be that as it may, with the exception of Prophet Muhammad we don't accept, Sunni Muslims don't accept that any other, um, other Prophet's family, anyone else was infallible or free of sin. Then we get to Aisha radiallahu anha. Aisha bint Abi Bakr, the Prophet's wife. For Sunni Muslims, it is without any question Aisha is beloved, most popular name among <laughs> among Muslim girls. It is known throughout the world. It has spread into the non-Muslim world. Non-Muslim girls walking around with the name Aisha, Fatima too. But still, Aisha is beloved by Sunni Muslims, without a doubt. Probably the most beloved woman in Islam. I'm going to say that for Sunni Muslims, I even think Aisha is probably more beloved by Sunni Muslims than even Khadija. Okay? Because we have much more information about Aisha than we do about Khadija. While we love Khadija, I will say that the love for Aisha, the story, we have so many more stories about her. And so, it's without a doubt, I'm just going to end it right there. Without a doubt, Aisha radiallahu anha is well beloved by Sunni Muslims. When it comes to Shiites, Totally different story. And this is where we start getting into these diff these uh, disagreements that will never be solved. I mentioned previously, in, um, when I first started talking about the first fitna with Ali, how Shiites universally disliked Aisha. 
I had to walk that back because I got comments from some Shiites who said, no, we don't dislike Aisha. We just like Ali. We just think Ali was uh, should have been the um, the caliph and we respect him highly. We actually love Aisha. So I'm going to walk that back some. And I have actually, now that I think about it, I have read things where um, many Shiites have toned down their rhetoric against Aisha. Um, I don't, maybe it's a political thing. Maybe they realize that, you know, this is causing more division than it's worth. But you go online, <laughs> you can go to online to some of these Shiite websites and they don't hold back. There is no toning down there. I mean, Lord of mercy, it's horrible the things they say about Aisha. I'm not even going to repeat half the stuff that they say. Um, but the point is that I'm going to hold to the, to the uh, fact that most Shiites have a negative view of Aisha. While there may be some exceptions and they have begun to tone it down in the past 50 or so years or so, for the most part, most Shiites have an overall negative view of Aisha. That still stands. Um, like I said, it's not universal. You have some who are a little more open-minded, but that still stands. And that's a very big sticking point with Sunni Muslims because we love Aisha. And so it's kind of hard to reconcile these two things. We can overlook it. We can ignore it. It's very difficult to reconcile when you have one group who says that she's a, then pretty much she's a monophic, that she is a hypocrite, and another group that says that you know she's one of the most righteous women to ever walk the face of the earth. I don't see how we're going to reconcile that anytime soon. So I'm going to leave that one alone, but you know, you know the deal with that one. So I made it clear, inshallah. I hope I have. Now, on to the events of Karbala. Um, Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims actually view this event quite differently. While both agree on pretty much the facts of what happened during Karbala, they agree that Hussein uh, was unrighteously killed, that Hussein was Hussein and his family were killed and the killers who those who did it are sinful and that Allah will deal with them in the next life. We agree on that. We agree that Hussein was definitely much more qualified than Yazid ibn Muawiyah to be caliph, and they're not even in the same stratosphere. It's hard to even mention them in the same sentence, but the idea behind this whole thing is where the differences begin. Shiites kind of hold Shiites hold, hold the belief that Hussein's mission was a suicide mission. He did this to make a statement. He was not, uh, from a Sunni perspective, let me get into that real quick. The Sunni perspective is that, and also the general historical perspective, the non-religious perspective, that Hussein wanted to win. He planned on overthrowing the uh, Umayyads in Kufa and then going from there and leading a rebellion against the Umayyads and establishing his, establishing his own caliphate and, and reestablishing his father's caliphate. This was a political decision by Hussein. Now, there may have been religious reasons behind that political decision, but Hussein, from a Sunni perspective, and once again from a simple historical perspective, Hussein was doing was leading a rebellion. He was trying to overthrow the the um, the Umayyads, and so we can argue all day whether he should have done it or not, whether it's a, a logical or strategic thing to do, whether it's the wise thing to do. You know, perhaps he should not have done it from a, a strategic point of view because he was. It was not very well planned. He was um, he was really outgunned in all in all in all respects. But Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims agree that Abdullah ibn Ziyad and Yazid ibn Muawiyah and Omar ibn Saad, all of them were wrong and sinful, and Allah will deal with them in the next life. Now, of course, for the Shiites, they probably cast even more aspersion on them than what I said. But I don't have. Umaydullah ibn Ziyad was not a good person. Umaydullah ibn Ziyad, yeah. Let's get Ziyad and Yazid mixed up. Anyway, Umaydullah ibn Ziyad was not a good person. And when we get into his story, you'll see how Allah brought this thing full circle around and got him as well. And Yazid ibn Muawiyah, for all of his, his uh, I mean, this is not even the last thing he does. He has even more evil things he does after this. And once again, Allah will deal with him as well. We agree with the Shiites on that spot in that respect that these two were, I hate to, I don't want to use the word evil, but they were really not good Muslims, okay? I don't know how else I can put it. They were really wrong Muslims. Uh, let Allah will deal with them as, a, as, as, he, as he sees fit. And Hussein was in the right and he was unjustly killed. And all, as were the members of his family and the, his Shia who were killed as well. 
They're all unjustly slaughtered by the Umayyads. However, from a Sunni perspective, this was not a divine mission. The Shiites believe that this was a divine mission. Hussein knew he was going to die. He did this to make a statement. Allah, this is him fulfilling Allah's mission, fulfilling Allah's decree. Um, and this was something that he marched to um, out of bravery and a divine mission. This was a divine um, tragedy from a Shia perspective. From a Sunni perspective, this was a historical tragedy. And we don't believe, Sunni Muslims don't believe that Hussein was religiously obligated to go to Kufa. Shiites believe that this was an obligation for Hussein to go to Kufa. He had to go to Kufa. He must go to Kufa. Um, to not go to Kufa, he would have been committing a sin. Whereas Sunni Muslims are like, no, nah, he probably should have stayed, stayed in Mecca. He probably should not have gone to Kufa in the first place. But be that as it may, uh, this does not by any means justify what happened to Hussein and his family. But just that we don't see it, Sunni Muslims don't see this as a um, don't see this as a as a divine thing. Now, once Hussein was killed, his the people of Kufa, and we'll get into it, inshallah in future episodes. The people of Kufa felt very bad about letting him down, and they began to this um, they began this um, tradition or this ritual of beating themselves and stabbing themselves with knives and spears and cutting themselves and. It's gone on. It continues on to today where they continue. It's a big spectacle now, um, but it's a very violent, um, and very extravagant displays of uh, penance where these people, the Shiites whip themselves and it's really kind of bloody in a way. Um, obviously, that's not something that Sunni Muslims would even tolerate. Um, we don't accept that. We don't believe it. Uh, but anyway, from a Sunni perspective, we don't believe that Hussein wanted to die. Okay. Shiites is like, this is a suicide mission. He had to die. He knew he was going to die. Sunni perspective was like, no, Hussein wanted to win. He expected to win. It just didn't work out that way. And also, from a Sunni perspective, Hussein's death is not the most tragic thing that ever happened. And this may be shocking, but it's not the, it's, it's, it is tragic, but it's not the most tragic. Hussein was only about seven years old when Prophet Muhammad وسلم, died. So he was not, he was a part of his family, of course, but he was not a close companion, so to speak. He was a prophet's grandson. He was a little boy when the prophet died. The death of Uthman was much more devastating to the Muslim world than the death of Hussein. I mean, on a, from a historical perspective, Hussein's death was really inconsequential. It led to the formation of the Shiites, I guess, and that was pretty important, but it didn't really change the trajectory of things. Whether Hussein had gone to Karbala or not gone to Karbala, things would have probably still gone on the same way. Whereas, with Uthman, Uthman's death wrecked the Muslim world, led to two civil wars, led to a whole bunch of civil wars, a whole bunch of rebellions, a whole bunch of sects um, popped out from all the from his death. It was horrible. So, as far as the the, um, the waves of of um, tragedy of these two events, the the death of Uthman was much more important, much more consequential in the wider prism of Islamic history. All right, now going on, still discussing some of the differences. And I didn't know it was going to go this long, but mashallah. The first three caliphs, we mentioned um, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman. For the Sunni Muslims, it's no, no question about it. All are beloved and respected, generally in that order, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. For Shiites, it varies. There, to me, it varies between either open hostility where there are some Shiites who openly curse these three, the three before Ali, um, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman. And there are some who just have, you know, casual indifference. Like, eh, they weren't bad people, but they weren't greater than Ali. They're just regular, regular Muslims, you know, no, no big deal. And there are some who say that they usurped the caliphate from Ali, that they all conspired to, cheat Ali of the caliphate. Now all not all Shiites, 12 Shiites say that, but believe that, but many of them do. I think even probably the majority of them do now. Back then, however, that was not the case. Back then, Shiite now Uthman does some difference of opinion with Uthman because some of the Shiites really did not like Uthman, as we saw. But with Abu Bakr and Omar was universally beloved by all Muslims at that time. Both um, those who were followers of uh, Muawiyah and those who followed Ali. Everyone pretty much loved Abu Bakr and Omar. 
And there was a difference of opinion with Othman. It was not until centuries later that this hostility began to develop among Shiites against Abu Bakr and Ahmad and Othman was included with, along with that. And so that's more of a recent development as far as um, in, a, in the big scheme of things. But as it is right now, for the most part, is um, overall, I would say, a negative view or a fairly negative view of the first three caliphs, more so for Uthman than the first two. But um, that's not universal. Some have much more um, respect for them than others. Now, when you go into other companions, with Muawiyah, there is no, <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> when it comes to Muawiyah, the Shiites hate him. Muawiyah and Yazid bin Muawiyah, there's no, no doubt about it. They hate him. Okay, not, I don't, I have yet to see any difference of opinion on that one. They hate him. Muawiyah and Yazid is, I'm going to pretty much on a limit and say, universally detested by the Shiites. Sunni Muslims are a slightly different story. It's somewhat more nuanced with Sunni Muslims. Muawiyah is not one of the more popular companions. That's one thing. So it's not like, you know, Bilal and uh, Zubair and Tolha and these other... He's not one of the more popular companions. So the vast majority of Muslims don't really know that much about him. What we do know about him, those who may have heard some lectures or know about Maui, they know that he was the one who started the, the king thing, the monarchy thing. He passed the caliphate on to his, his son. And so, generally speaking, most Sunni Muslims have a negative view of that. For Sunni Muslims who are more learned, who do understand the history of, uh, of Muawiyah, it's a little bit, bit more difficult. First, we have to acknowledge the, um, the concept among Sunni Muslims that you don't want to say anything bad about the, the, um, the companions, any of them. And this is somewhat a little bit too universal because the companions, the com definition for companions, anyone who is a believer who laid eyes on Prophet Muhammad So it's a very broad definition. There are lots of people who fit into that category who are not really great people. And I hate to say it like that. Many of them, many of these companions were, were not that great. Muawiyah does not fall into that category of a not great companion. Muawiyah is, Muawiyah is different. He was related to the Prophet by marriage. Um, he also was a scribe for Prophet Muhammad and even though he started off as an enemy, he later did convert and he was trusted, entrusted by the first two caliphs, Abu Bakr and Omar. So with Muawiyah, we have to acknowledge from a Sunni perspective, we acknowledge the fact that he did some things that were wrong. He should not have fought against Ali. He should not have um, named his son the caliph. He should not have killed those Muslims that he killed, such as Hujr ibn Adi and others. But also, that there's also good that he did. Um, he protected the Muslim, he brought peace back to the Muslim world after you know several years of conflict and civil war. He, he unified the Muslim world and he did begin to expand it. He waged jihad against the Romans. He protected the Muslims against outside invaders. I mean, he did wrong things, but he also did good things. And, you know, he wrote, the, he wrote words of the Quran down from the, from the Prophet's own lips. So this is, I, I, I got to take a more of a nuanced view with Muawiyah. Things are not always black and white. And this is one of the things that, you know, both Sunnis and Shias have to kind of understand. Things are not always black and white. Muawiyah and most other people, you know, with the exception of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who was, you know, we accept that he's 100% good. But for most other people, they have good and bad within them. And Muawiyah was one of those. He had good points with him. He had bad points with him. And ultimately, we leave it up to Allah to judge him on that. And so with Sunni Muslims, we shouldn't out and out hate Muawiyah. All right. Um, I, hate to, I can't tell you what to do, per se, whether you should hate him or not. But I don't believe, looking at it from a historical perspective, you know, he did, he did some good things for the Muslim world. And he did some bad things also. And so, I mean, got to leave it with a lot to, to, judge him, to judge him. With his son, it's a, it's a slightly different story. Yazid, I haven't mentioned all the bad things that Yazid has done. Yazid was not a righteous Muslim. Muawiyah, you can say, was at least his, um, his practice of Islam was fairly righteous. Whereas Yazid was not righteous. Yazid was known to drink alcohol. He was known to 
do um, lots of things that righteous Muslims would look down upon. Things like having parties with um, with mixed gender parties, uh, playing music, and not in the point, opinion of whether music is halal or haram. But you know, you know how many Muslims are. Uh, righteous Muslims are not going to tolerate. I'm sorry, righteous Muslims. Muslim scholars, Muslim Muslim shayukh, the, the scholars, they're not going to really tolerate music, but so much, if any, if at all. So, compared to the other companion, well, Yazid was not companion, but compared to the other Muslims, Yazid was way below as far as rank and respect and righteousness. He's way below the rest of them. He should not have been the caliph. And Maui made a big mistake by naming him as caliph. And Yazid did some pretty bad things. The slaughter at Karbala was just one of them. We get into some of the stuff. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but we'll get into the next season, inshallah. Um, giving away spoiler. Anyway, we'll get into that stuff later on, inshallah. But Yazid also, once again, universally detested by Shiite Muslims. Sunni Muslims, those that know about him, generally we have a negative view of him. And my view of Yazid is also fairly negative. I don't curse him anything like that. Now, I don't believe we should be cursing anybody on a regular basis. That's that's crazy. But you know, no, Yazid was not was not a righteous or or a good person, and he made too many too many mistakes. But once again, he is absolutely detested by the Shiites. For as far as the other companions was was are concerned, there's a lot. There's um, for the Shiites, it varies pretty much. For those few most companion most of the companions did not support Ali during the conflict between Muawiyah and Ali. Um some supported Muawiyah, some supported Ali, many stayed neutral. So I'm gonna go on a limb here and say most did not support Ali. Most I believe stayed neutral. Be that as it may, for the Shiites, those companions that supported Ali, Ibn Abbas, um Abu Dhar, even Abu Dhar was was dead by then, but still, because Abu Dhar opposed Uthman, he's kind of put into the realm of those who supported Ali. Um, there's another, um, uh, Yasid ibn Ahmed, Ahmed ibn Yasid, I can't, I can't remember the name, but we spoke about him before. He's one of those who supported Ali. And there, there are others, many others, but those that support Ali or those that died before the conflict started, pretty much universal, universally beloved by the Shiites. Sunni Muslims, of course, love them as well. Um, those Muslims that did not support Ali, same thing as the first three first three caliphs. If they supported Muawiyah, they disliked them pretty much. If they were neutral, like Ibn Omar and and um, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas, it kind of ranges between negative and negative views of these guys or of these companions or indifference, if not anything else. Okay, so now we're going to get into some of the not all the fic, some of the fic. <laughs> There's lots of fic. Fiqh is pretty much the rules of of the two groups. There's lots of them. Uh, for the most part, most of our rules are pretty much the same. Five pillars, we pretty much do the same same five pillars. Um, fasting, um, hajj, zakat, salat, um, prayer. I think I said salat already. Um, shahada. It's pretty much the same between Sunnis and Shiites. There's not much difference with them. Um, Shiites, they don't eat pork. They don't drink alcohol they're not, I mean, well they're not supposed to it's against their it's against their religion to drink alcohol just like it's against Sunni Muslims religion to drink alcohol and just like you have Sunnis who drink alcohol you have Shiites who drink alcohol too but those people are generally they're acknowledging that they're violating Islam Islamic Islamic rules but be that as it may the one perhaps most popular thing popular thick item between Sunnis and Shiites is the concept of temporary marriage called Mu'tah um, with Mu'ta, this is um, temporary marriage. Let me explain what that is first. Quick history. During the time of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the companions were going out into battle. They would conquer an area and they, they were maybe several days or weeks or maybe even months away from home. And they had women that they wanted to get, that they wanted to be with. They had women that they wanted to be with, but they didn't want to commit sin. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa allowed them to have to conduct temporary marriages with these women. This was a marriage where both parties agree is going to end at a certain time. We're going to get married for a week. We're going to get married for a month. We're going to get married for six months. We're going to mutually divorce and go our separate ways. That happened during the Prophet's time. By the time it was also going on during Abu Bakr's time. 
By the time Uthman became caliph, sorry, not Uthman, Omar, by the time Omar ibn Khattab became caliph, he outlawed it. And from that point on, from the Sunni perspective, Mu'ta is forbidden in Islam because Omar outlawed it. From a Sunni perspective, Omar would not outlaw something that Prophet Muhammad had permitted unless he knew something about it that we did not know. Unless he knew there was meant to be a temporary thing or that he knew that the Prophet only allowed it for this period of time or for certain circumstances. That's the Sunni perspective. The Shiite perspective is that Omar does not have the right to outlaw anything that Prophet Muhammad has permitted. That's the Shiite perspective. And so temporary marriages are still allowed among Shiite Muslims. Um, so that's, and it still happens today. It is where man and woman, they agree, we're going to get married for a certain period of time. And at this point in time, it ends. This is more of a thick issue. There's no Quranic verse for it. You know, it's, this is where, you know, Prophet he allows something. And a later companion who was a leader of the Muslim world said, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. We're, you know, I can see the reason why Omar did that. I'm not going to say whether Omar is right or wrong. I, I agree with Omar. If he said this, you know, if he if he disallowed it, then you know I accept that. But I'm just giving you the history behind it. Trying to, I'm trying to be as unbiased as possible. Okay, but that's what muata or temporary marriage is. There are still some Sunni Muslims today who do it, but these are not Sunni Muslims who who uh, they don't do it because they they hold they want to hold to the to the tradition of Prophet Muhammad or something. They do it because you know they want to <laughs> they want to be with someone. And not and not commit sin, and so they work this thing out. If you want to do that, that's on you. Don't say Brother Mutaki taught you how to do that or told you you can do that. I did not. Don't put any of that stuff on me. But final thing I'm going to talk about is intermarriage between Sunnis and Shiites. I've actually asked this question before years ago. A Sheikh came to visit um, uh, the mass I was attending um, in Florida. Sheikh from uh, I forgot where I think it was from. Syria or something like that. I forgot where he was from. But anyway, he came to visit Masjid in Florida where I was um, living at the time. This is many years ago. And I asked, I asked him the question, can Sunnis marry Shiites? And essentially, he was saying that from for men, it's not a, for Sunni men to marry Shiite women, there's no question about it. It is permissible. If we can marry Christians, of course we can marry um, uh, Shiites. We can marry Christians and Jews, and of course we can marry Shiites. We're no no problem with Sunni men marrying Shiite women. And I've never heard any other opinion other than that. When it comes to the other way around, Sunni women marrying Shiite men, then you're going to get your difference of opinions. And that's where you're going to get some who say yes and some who say no. I haven't really tallied it up, but my guess is that the vast majority of Sunni Muslims are going to say, no, it's not permissible, or that it's very much disliked at the very least. So there you have it. Um, so if you're a man, Sunni man, trying to marry a Shia woman, go forth and know that there's, <laughs> there's no difference of opinion. It's pretty much accepted. The other way around, I don't know. You are, if you're a Sunni sister and you're interested in a Shiite brother, you're going to have to um, do your research and, and, uh, and ask your scholars, ask your, your imams to give you some uh, fatwa on that one. Leave me out of it. Okay, so we're going to pretty much start wrapping this up. I just want to go over some information about the future of this podcast. First and foremost, we're going to do one more episode for this season, and then we're going to end season three. So this is episode th episode nine of season season three, season three, episode nine. We're going to do um, one more episode, inshallah, and stop at 10 episodes for season three. This 10th episode will discuss the aftermath of Karbala and the rise of Ibn Zubair. So season three will end with episode 10, inshallah. After that, I'm going to have to take some time off because I got to get prepared for season four. And I would like to have all of season four completed and scheduled and put out before I get started. I, I can't stand this thing that I do, that I'm doing right now, where I put an episode, I gotta wait a couple of weeks while I do research and prepare and doing that. I can't stand doing that. I hate going, having two or three weeks in between episodes. It's, I, I don't like it, okay? I'd rather have, I'd rather take off a few months, probably several months, prepare the entire season for episode, for season four, and schedule it out, and then it's all 
done. Okay. I, that's what I would rather do. So you get one episode every single week for at least three or four months straight. This will be much easier for me because I can take some time off and relax in between seasons or when the season is going. So once season four starts, I can take some time off and I can prepare for the next season. I'm not always rushing from one episode to another to another. These episodes where I take off two weeks at a time, where you don't get an episode two or three weeks at a time, it's because I'm preparing for the next episode. And that stuff is difficult. That's really not easy for me. I'd rather get all out, get it done, put it out there, it's scheduled, it comes out just like regular TV, you know, regular stuff. And then, you know, I can relax and work on the next one. So with that, after this 10th episode, inshallah, I will probably be off the air for several months at a time. I will make a few shows available during this period of time as I prepare for season four. I'm going to put the complete series of the Anglo-Afghan war out. Someone um, had questions about it, wanted to hear the whole thing. I'm going to put all that out. Also, one of my sponsors has requested I do a story about the IFK, which is the um, slander against Aisha, I'm going to discuss that. I'm going to do a, a full episode on that in between these two seasons, inshallah. So those are the two things I'm I'll, the two things I put out in between season three and season four. But other than that, I'm going to take this time off and work on season four after after this next episode, inshallah. And I don't know how long it's going to take. I know for certain it's going to take several, at least three months, if not more. Please be patient, okay? Brothers and sisters, please be patient with me. Let me do this, all right? Please do not unsus- do not unsubscribe. I am not quitting the show. I am preparing the next season. I'm a one-man band, all right? Please do not unsubscribe. Please do not rush me, <laughs> okay? I get emails from people in between episodes telling me, come on, man, with the next episode. I, I appreciate it. I love it. I'm so happy that you enjoy it and that you want to hear it. But please, give me the time to put this show together for you and give you something that's good, inshallah. If you are a sponsor, please don't cancel your sponsorships, okay? I need to keep the show running, okay? I don't make that much money from this thing. It barely covers the expenses for running the show. I know you're going to go several months without an episode. Please don't cancel your, your, your sponsorships. Bear with me, please, and let me put this out and let me give you a good show. By all means, though, if you want to check in, ask me if everything's okay, you have a question, want to compliment or, or anything, even want to comment, negative, good, bad, whatever, by all means, feel free to do so. I don't mind you doing that, but please don't rush me, guys. All right? Please give me the time to get this t- together for you. All right? So I think we're going to end with that. I hope I've given you a pretty good understanding of the differences between Sunni and Sharia. I hope, inshallah, that it can help in perhaps mitigating some of your animosity towards them if you ever had any before. I don't think we should have any. There are obvious obvious differences we can't overlook and we can't ignore, but I don't think these differences have to lead to violence or hatred or anything like that. I'm pretty sure we can coexist. There's our word. I'm pretty sure we can coexist without, you know, getting into this part where we have different neighborhoods and different massages and all the all the other problems we have right now between the two groups. But be that as it may. Inshallah, I hope it helped out. And if uh, I'm, this is a fairly unscripted show, so I may have said some things that uh, you may disagree with or that I was wrong in. Wrong in. If you have questions or you want to correct me or something, by all means, let me know. You have the right to do that. And I am by no means above reproach. May Allah forgive me if I said anything wrong. May Allah reward me if there is anything good. And may Allah reward you as well if you benefited. Inshallah. With that, we're going to end this. Inshallah, brothers and sisters, there will be no outro. We're just going to end. With and I give you the greetings. So until next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Aditya Mashel Kar and I work for Dubai First. Uh, we are a finance company. Uh, I have a very simple one line question. Uh, what and why is the difference between Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims? Wa alaikum assalam, brother Aditya. May peace be on you too. Mashallah, speaking Arabic, salam means may peace be on you. Islam is a religion of peace. He has the question, basic question, what is the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslim? Correct? Yes. Brother, there is no Sunni and Shia in the Quran. Read the Quran, there is no Sunni Shia in the Quran. Quran says in Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 103, Hold to the rope of Allah strongly and be not divided. You have to follow Allah, 
and his Rasul. Follow the Quran and the authentic Hadith. Shiaism came later on because of political differences. It has nothing to do with Islam. In Islam, there's no sect. Quran says in Surah Anam, chapter 6, verse 159, if anyone makes sex in the religion of Islam, O oh, Prophet, have nothing to do with him. Allah will look after affairs. There are many verses in the Quran which say making sex in the religion of Islam is prohibited. There is no sect. All these are because of political differences that came. But in Islam, there's nothing like Shia Sunni. There's only Muslim. Muslim is a person who submits his will to God. So in that case, uh, which belief is more correct, Shia or Sunni? The belief which believes in the Quran and the Sahih Hadith is correct. The belief. The person who believes in the teachings of Quran and the Sahih Hadith is correct. The moment you ask questions, if he gives reference from the Quran, he's correct. If he says, my Sheikh says this, my Sheikh said that, my Imam said this. If the saying of the Imam matches with the Quran, we match with it. Quran says in Surah Nisa, chapter 4, verse 59, Allah, Rasul, obey Allah and obey the messengers and those who have been given the power of Amr, of commandment. But the verse does not stop that, continues. But if the people of knowledge differ, go back to Allah and his Rasul. If two scholars say two different things, check up which scholar matches with Quran and Sahih Hadith. The one who follows this Quran Sahih Hadith is on the straight path, is a true Muslim, the other is not. So brother, which one would you like to choose? Shia or Sunni? <laughs> well, sir, I'm, I'm a Hindu, so... Sorry? I'm a Hindu, I, I really don't know much, but it was just that I was curious to know uh, about, you know... No, uh, where did I thought... I thought now you have to decide. Should I become a Shia or a Sunni? <laughs> no, not really, sir. So I'm I thought a born maybe... a Hindu and I die a Hindu. <laughs> born a Hindu, brother, even I was born a Hindu. I don't know that I die as Hindu. You know what the definition of the word Hindu? Hindu by definition means a person who lives in the land of Indus Valley. The people who live in India are called as Hindus. Correct. This word Hindu is not in any of the religious scriptures. It was first used by the Arabs. When the Arabs came to India, they gave the word Hindi. Hindi hai. You know, when I go to Saudi and here, they call me Hindi. Hindi means a person coming from India.